Before we begin, I have an exciting announcement to make. For several months now, we have been seeking a, a new campus pastor for our East Lexington campus, and I'm happy to announce this morning that Reverend Tom Lee has accepted our invitation to serve, and will begin uh, serving in that capacity later this spring. Now, Tom is no stranger to Greater Boston. He has been on the staff of the Boston Chinese Evangelical Church for over 20 years, and for the past 13 years, he has been campus pastor of their Newton campus. So uh, he is a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Seminary and is working on his Doctor of Ministry at Talbot Seminary out on the West Coast. Uh, he and his wife Edna live in Arlington and have three young adult sons. So we look forward to introducing him to you a little more personally uh, when he gets here later this spring, but uh, he couldn't wait, so we sent a little greeting video. So let's turn our attention to the screens for just a minute. Hi, I'm Tom. I'm Edna. And we're so excited to join the East Lexington uh, Grace family. We're so excited because God has called us uh, to join you uh, in bringing his kingdom, his love and his grace uh, through a diverse community that's missional and intergenerational. We're so excited to come. A little bit about us is that we live in Arlington, only about five minutes away from LCA. Um, in fact, our eldest son attended middle school there many years ago. Um, he is now a six-year student in physical therapy. And our second one, Jeremy, is studying business and our third son, Josh, is in his first year of physical therapy. Um, and I'm a fourth grade teacher in Bedford. We're so excited to come and join and meet each of you personally. We hope to see you really soon. Uh, God bless you. As you can tell, one of the things we really love about Tom is his personal warmth, his pastoral heart, which just comes through every time you're with him. He also brings great leadership experience as a campus pastor, as well as a great heart for reaching the many diverse people of the greater Boston community. So we're thrilled and look forward to him beginning a little later this spring. So thank you for your prayers and support for what's happening there in East Lexington. And if you've been thinking about checking it out, this would be a great time the next few weeks to pay a visit as they get ready for their next and exciting chapter of ministry. Well, several years ago, when our kids were still living at home, one day the, my three sons and I played hooky and headed north for a day of skiing. Now, it was gray and drizzly at the beginning of the morning, but... Uh, we were confident by the time we got to the mountains, it would be cold and snowy. So we enjoyed clear sailing for the first hour or so, listening to the radio and talking about uh, a day on the slopes. Uh, at one point, as I came up over a rise and uh, onto the other side, I suddenly had this strange sensation. And the car seemed to be, we were on a straightaway, but the car was drifting sideways. And I gently tried to steer our Dodge Maxi van back into the center lane and and nothing happened. In fact, what happened was we began to spin. I realized at that point the entire roadway was covered in ice, and we were now hurtling down the center lane, just spinning as we went completely out of control, as were a few other cars also on the road at the time. We began drifting toward the guardrail, and I could tell we were going to hit, and just before we did, I hollered, hold on, boys, because I was sure our oversized van was going to tip right over that guardrail and down the embankment 
Instead, we bounced back into the center lane, still spinning but moving more slowly. We eventually came to rest right in the center lane. And in the rearview mirror, I could see coming over the rise a few other cars and a tractor trailer also beginning to drift and lose control. Again, I hollered, get out, boys, get out. And we hopped out of the car and slipped and slid our way across the, across the lanes of traffic, just making it to the shoulder as those cars and truck came sliding by, somehow missing our van. We stood there silently, huffing and puffing, holding on to each other and whispering prayers of thanks. A few moments later, it seemed troopers were already on the scene and they had things settled down and under control. The roadway was littered with cars facing in every direction, but miraculously, no one was hurt and our, our battered old van was uh, still drivable. So shaken, we climbed back in and again whispered a prayer and thought about heading home but didn't want to give in to what had happened, so we pressed on. <laughs> but we drove and skied a little more cautiously that particular day. For several weeks now, we have been enjoying being on the road with Jesus and his disciples. And we've been enjoying the joys of being on the road, the, the, the people you spend time with, the, the places you get to see, the experiences you have along the way. And we're going to continue this journey right on through Palm Sunday and Sacred Spaces at Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday as well. Next Sunday's Palm Sunday, and I'll be bringing a dramatic monologue, so that might be a good Sunday to invite someone, as well as Resurrection Sunday, of course. So it's been a great trip so far, but we know that the road can turn ugly real fast. Bad weather, reckless drivers, fatigue, car trouble. In an instant, a happy-go-lucky drive to the mountains can become a, an out-of-control brush with disaster. And so it's no surprise that as Jesus makes his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, at a certain point, he begins to talk to his disciples about the dangers ahead. At this point, the travel narrative in Luke's gospel takes a dark turn. Jesus' words become more ominous, and his tone does as well. He, he, he begins to speak about the need to remain true to him and to their calling, even in the face of hardship and hostility. And so this conversation is going to remind us that following Christ is not always easy. Life is unpredictable. Circumstances can test our faith. Temptation comes our way. People don't always understand or appreciate our faith. Sometimes they even turn away from us because of our faith. The culture we're living in seems to be increasingly unfriendly and sometimes even hostile to people of faith and in particular perhaps Christian faith. And so sometimes, perhaps, we find ourselves thinking twice before we speak our faith publicly. What will they think of me? Will they take me less seriously? Will they still invite me to go out with them after work or to the party after the game? Am I putting my career or my popularity or, or my friendships at risk? by telling people what I really believe, by living my faith openly and publicly. And as challenging as it may be for us to live our faith publicly, it is far more challenging and more dangerous, truly, for many believers around the world 
who on any given day may find themselves losing their jobs, driven from their homes, thrown into jail, beaten, and perhaps even put to death because of their faith. In 60 nations around the world today, Christians are being persecuted for their faith. So maybe it's time that we have a conversation with Jesus about how to follow him in times of hardship and hostility. How do we stay on the road with Jesus when it becomes difficult and dangerous? We're going to be today in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. It's a pretty challenging passage of Scripture, not only in its application, but even to understand it. One of the most unsettling verses in all the New Testament is uh, here in this text we're going to look at. I've successfully avoided preaching on this for 30 years now. (laughs) I, I don't know that I've ever taught on this passage, but it's got an important message for us today. So let's begin, Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one and trampling one on another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples saying, "Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy." Now that first word, meanwhile, suggests that as Jesus and his disciples are merrily making their way towards Jerusalem, other things are happening. Trouble is brewing. Now, on the one hand, his population, popularity is increasing as more and more people begin to identify him as a teacher, as a leader, and maybe even Messiah. But just as the popularity increases, so also does the opposition. First, from the religious leaders who see Jesus as a threat to their authority and to their tradition, but also the threat of, of Roman authorities who, who viewed any rebel movement uh, as, as, as a force that might upset the stability of the region. They would not hesitate to respond with force in such a situation. And so on the one hand, you have this increasing popularity at the same time, this increasing sense of opposition. In fact, Luke says, there was a crowd of many thousands and that they were trampling one on another. If you've ever been in a crowd like that, a mob like that, restless, politically charged, getting out of control, you know it's a very unsettling experience, frightening even. And so Jesus, who's always watching, senses what's happening, the intensity of the crowd, the hostility of the religious leaders sprinkled about, and maybe even the intimidating presence of Roman soldiers nearby. Sensing what's happening, he gathers his disciples close and he says to them, in effect, hold on, boys. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, this must have caught the disciples by surprise because as far as they're concerned, things seem to be going great. More and more people are following their leader. They're gaining strength even as they're about to arrive in Jerusalem. But Jesus recognizes that there's dangers ahead and that as the opposition increases, as it becomes more and more hazardous to be identified as a Jesus follower. His disciples might be tempted to fall into the same trap as the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now this gets a little tricky, so let's look at the next verse and I'll explain. Jesus says, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. 
What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Now, what's Jesus getting at here? Well, a hypocrite is basically a pretender. Someone who speaks and acts one way in public and speaks and acts differently in private. And so these religious leaders acted in public like they loved God and loved people, making great shows of their piety and their generosity. But in their personal lives, they were proud, they were greedy, they were judgmental, and their hearts were far from the heart of God. And so there was a disconnect between their public faith and their private lives. The disciples are going to be tempted to a very different kind of hypocrisy, a disconnect between their private faith and their public lives. See, Jesus knew a time was coming when it was going to be very hard to be dangerous to be identified as a follower of Jesus. And so these disciples would be tempted to practice their faith privately, to pray and worship and study and fellowship in the safety of their inner rooms under cover of darkness. But when they got out into the streets where it was dangerous, they would be tempted to, to, to shrink back from identifying with Jesus and proclaiming their faith. And so a private faith, but a, a very different life publicly. And that perhaps is the kind of hypocrisy that some of us can identify with more easily. The other day, this past week, I was working in the office and walked across the street to get some lunch. I was coming right from a meeting, so I had a pile of books with me, including a rather sizable black Bible. As I was walking into the establishment, I smoothly took the Bible and slipped it underneath the other books. I didn't want to put anybody in an uncomfortable situation. <laughs> Maybe I didn't want to be in an uncomfortable situation. I'm a little bit embarrassed and ashamed to tell you that, but chances are <laughs> you've done or said or thought some similar things. It's easy for us to use Jesus' name when we're together in settings like this, in the safety of sanctuaries and small group Bible studies and meeting Christian friends for coffee. But how often do we speak Jesus' name out loud in the halls of our school or the lunchroom at work or walking around the neighborhood? How often do we hold back on saying what we really think, what we really believe for fear of what other people might think of us, the impact it might have on our career or our popularity or our respectability? Beware. Jesus says. These small compromises, these social fears can work their way through every aspect of your life like yeast working its way through a lump of dough until one day you wake up and you realize that you, in fact, are questioning God and distancing yourself from Him. Jesus goes on. What's whispered in the dark will be heard in the daylight or as we might translate it, what's written in an email will be posted on Facebook. <laughs> what's Jesus getting at here? Well, it could be Jesus is looking forward to the day of judgment when, when the true condition of our hearts will be revealed. Or it could be he's looking just a year or so down the road to when it's going to be dangerous to be associated with Jesus. And when the 
Disciples will no longer be able to keep their followership secret, but the authorities will come looking for them and, and drag them out into public to proclaim their faith. Either way, he is warning his disciples, warning them against living a, a secret, hidden, hypocritical faith and challenging them to live it out publicly even when it's dangerous. He goes on, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Yikes. <laughs> this is getting scarier all the time. But Jesus is not exaggerating the danger. We saw the film Risen recently, and it's actually pretty well done if you can get past the British accents. Um, <laughs> but it tells the story of a hardened Roman soldier who was commissioned by Pilate to go find the body of Jesus and put an end to these rumors of resurrection. Now, spoiler alert, they don't find the body. <laughs> I stole that joke from Eric Metaxas, so <laughs> credit where credit is due. What I appreciated most about the film was the way it captured the hostile, violent, chaotic environment in which Jesus and the disciples were operating in first century Judea. In one of the early scenes, Calvius, this Roman tribune, is sent out to put down a, a small Jewish revolt, a group of religious fanatics being led by a pseudo-messiah. Now, I'll spare you the gory details, enough to say they made quick and bloody work of those rebels and their leader. The disciples had good reason to fear for their lives. And so, in fact, do many of our brother and sisters in Christ around the world. The watchdog group Open Doors tells us that about 180 Christians a month are executed for their faith around the world. But Jesus reminds his disciples, and he reminds us, that the worst that any human authority can do to us is to bring unearthly life to a premature end. Now, as unhappy as that may be for us and for those who love us, how much worse, Jesus says, to enter eternity having separated ourselves from the one who loves us and made us for himself and for eternity. The word used for hell here is Gehenna, refers to a garbage dump outside the city. Now, whatever hell may actually be, God is not eager for anyone to go there. But that's the danger that faces anyone who refuses to recognize Jesus and his work. So how do we remain true to our faith, knowing the stakes are so high and the, and the hostility is increasing? How do we stay on the road with Jesus, even in the face of hardship and hostility? Well, in the next verses, Jesus offers his disciples and us three encouraging words for the journey. And the first encouraging word is to trust the care of a loving heavenly Father. Trust the care of a loving, heavenly Father. Let's look at verse 6. 
Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus reminds his disciples and us how valuable we are to God. So valuable that he knows everything about us, even the numbers of hairs on our head. Now, unfortunately, he only keeps track of them. He doesn't replace them. <laughs> Jesus recalls the familiar imagery from the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? God knows what we need. God knows what happens to us. God knows what he and we can handle together. This is one of the first things I share with someone when I show up in their life in a time of, of loss or hardship, a job loss, a sickness, um, a betrayal, a death. God knows. God is not surprised by this. We may be surprised. God is not surprised. God is not in a panic. In fact, he has already been preparing people and resources and strength that will see us through that time. It doesn't mean that God has engineered this bad thing. Bad things happen in this world. We live in a fallen world. People do evil things. We make dumb decisions. Things happen, but God knows and he's there. It doesn't mean that things always turn out the way we had hoped they would. The healing, the provision, the deliverance, it doesn't always come as quickly as we'd like. Sometimes it doesn't come at all. But God knows. God knows what we need to get through this season. God knows the purpose for which he put us on this planet and he has in place the people and the resources and the strength to see us through. And so when the road gets difficult and dangerous, we can trust his loving care. We can trust him with our career. Even when we lose a sale or a promotion because of the way we practice our faith or because of some moral conviction. We can trust him with our career. We can trust him with our relationships. Even when we have to walk away from a romance because of our commitment to sexual purity and integrity. Or when a friend walks away from us because they're uncomfortable with our faith. We can trust him with our heart. And we can trust him with our lives even when we put them at risk sometimes to serve someone nearby or far away, we can trust him. The second word of encouragement is to remember your love for the one who saved you. Remember your love for the one who saved you. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of heaven. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. Now, I was going to talk about loyalty here. Loyalty is firm, consistent support for someone or something. 
Now, loyalty is certainly an important concept. It's an admirable quality. But as I thought about loyalty, it occurred to me that loyalty is only as good, as strong as your love for the person or the cause you're being loyal to. In other words, loyalty is grounded not in some internal commitment, but in my relationship with a person or an idea. So when our faith is being put to the test, either by temptation or by hardship or even by persecution, instead of gritting our teeth and trying hard to get through, how much better to remember the one we love, the one who loves us and who has saved us and given us all that we enjoy in life. Remember him. You might think of it this way. I've sometimes spoken with Christian men and women who travel a lot for, for work. And they'll talk about the dangers and the temptations of being far away, sometimes for long periods of time. So some have said to me that one of the things they do is to take along a picture of their spouse or their family. As soon as they check into the hotel room, they put that picture on their nightstand or on their dresser. They find it's a lot harder to do something stupid when they're being reminded every day of the people they love and the people who are counting on them. And so, in a similar way, when we remember who Christ is and what he's done for us and what he offers to the world, out of love for him, we remain loyal to him. And it gives us strength to, to stay true to him and to turn down other opportunities. I have found it's very difficult to, to say the name Jesus, either in my head or out loud, and in the same breath, think or say or do a foolish, cowardly, or hurtful thing. They just don't go together. You know, as we read this passage and this particular warning about dis disowning Jesus, you can't help but remember Peter and his threefold denial of Christ on the very night Jesus is being betrayed and arrested. It's interesting that all four Gospels tell us very specifically that after he denied him the third time and after the rooster crowed, then, the scripture says, Peter remembered Jesus' words. If only he'd remembered those words a little sooner on the front end. Luke's gospel tells us in particular that just after he denied that third time and the rooster crowed, in that moment, Jesus and Peter looked at one another. Their eyes met. If only he'd looked at Jesus the moment he entered that courtyard, it might have had a different outcome. And that leads us to one of the most unsettling verses in all of the New Testament. So we should talk about it. Verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. A lot of Christians have laid awake on their beds at night worrying that they might have committed the unpardonable sin. The next morning they call their pastor and make an appointment to talk about this verse. So let's try to understand what Jesus is actually saying here. First and most important, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. I mean, even the sin of denying Jesus outright can be forgiven three times, as we learned from Peter's example. The only person 
who can't be forgiven is the person who stubbornly and persistently resists the work of God's Spirit in their lives. The work of God's Spirit is to awaken our spiritual longings for eternity, for beauty, for love and justice. The work of the Spirit is to convict us of our failure to live up to those things, of our sinfulness. The work of the Spirit is to point us toward Jesus, His life and death and resurrection. The work of the Spirit is to call us to turn to Him and when we resist and refuse to respond to that prompting work, well, then how can we be forgiven? We are refusing the very forgiveness that's being offered to us. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the sin of persistent unbelief and unrepentance. Now, the consequences of that are grave, as Jesus tells us. And if that should happen to describe you, then you have reason to be afraid. But if you're laying awake at night worrying that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, then you most certainly have not. So roll over and go back to sleep <laughs> and don't call me. So when the road gets difficult and dangerous, we trust the care of a loving Heavenly Father. We remember the one who has saved us. And then thirdly, we listen for the prompting of the Holy Spirit who will tell us when to speak and what to say. Let's look at the final verses. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Notice, Jesus never promises freedom from difficulty or danger. In fact, he says, count on it. When you get hauled in before people, what he does promise is that when we find ourselves in those difficult, awful, dangerous moments, he will be with us by his Spirit. And isn't that what we want in any difficult, dangerous situation when we venture out on a dark and stormy night? Don't we want someone in the car with us? When we head to the hospital for surgery, don't we want someone in the waiting room praying for us? When we're hauled into a courtroom for something, don't we want someone out there who is representing us or on our side? And if that someone is stronger and wiser and braver than we are, then all the better. Jesus is promising his, his, promising his disciples and us that in those moments, by his Spirit, he will be with us. And he'll give us the courage to face whatever it is we're dealing with He'll give us the strength to remain true to Him in our convictions. And He will give us the, the words to say should we need to speak up. Now, chances are some of you have heard reports about the recent release of a, of a pastor named uh, Saeed Abedini. Uh, pastor Abedini is a naturalized U.S. citizen who uh, was in prison in Iran for about four years, just recently released. He went to Iran in 2012 to work with some local churches and setting up an orphanage. He was arrested there for spying. It was the 10th time he's been arrested in Iran. He was sentenced to four years in prison, including torture. He was recently released, and a reporter asked him how he survived it all. He said, I thought maybe they were going to kill us because I had converted from Islam to Christianity, but the Holy Spirit was with me. He encouraged me and he prepared me for all the suffering I should go through. 
he went on to describe how many fellow prisoners and even some guards had come to faith in Christ as a result of his witness until finally they threw him into solitary confinement for the past, for the final two years. When the reporter asked if he feared he would never get out, he said, every time I prayed, the Holy Spirit put it in my heart, no, I still have some work for you to do. I, when, when we hear stories like that, we can't help but wonder, where do these people get this kind of faith and courage? We wonder if we could stand up under that kind of test and difficulty. And the truth is, we probably don't have that kind of faith and courage right now. But the promise of Jesus is that in those moments, we will get it. In those moments, by his Holy Spirit, he'll grant wisdom, strength, and courage. And if he can do that for believers under these kinds of tests and temptations, he can surely do it for us as we navigate our culture and the school and the office and the neighborhood. You know, it's interesting when, when, when persecuted Christians are asked what they want of the rest of the church around the world, all they ask is that we would pray, that we would stand with them in prayer. But here's the thing. They don't ask us to pray for their safety or their release. They ask us to pray for their courage to bear witness for Christ and that they would have love for their captors. Now, in just a moment, we're going to do just that. We're going to pray for the persecuted church around the world. But in preparation for that prayer, just to get a sense for what's happening and to illustrate some of the things we've been talking about, we have a short video to show that tells about the, the persecuted church in Syria and in particular in the beleaguered city of Homs. Let's watch. Can you imagine these, these rooms? I feel very sorry for what, what has happened, really. How long will this go on for here? I don't know. <laughs> God alone knows. God alone knows. We have something more important than anything else that makes us stay in the country. Well, that something is the life-given message from the Lord. And we are kind of ambassadors of the Lord. We know that many countries that withdrew their ambassadors, which is bad enough. But if heaven withdrew its ambassador from the country, it's a disaster. Our privilege is not that we are able to leave. Our privilege is that we are able to stay for such a time in the country. And I always say this statement, and I believe it from the bottom of my heart. There is a lady in Homs area who insisted to stay during this difficult time, just to reach out to those families and women who are in need. She's risking her life literally every day. And she goes from home to home just to, you know, check on those families and see what they need, what they, you know, 
daily problems, give them some support, uh, buy them, just imagine, buy them meat and bread and stuff like that. So she is a true soldier of Christ during this difficult time. Uh, who dares to go to Homs these days? I mean, it's very risky, very, very dangerous. Yet, she is doing this on daily basis. She goes from home to home and check on children because she's a Sunday school teacher. And she tries to keep the children busy with Bible verses. So she memorize those Bible verses with them on the phone, and then she goes and visit with them, and they would say it, you know, uh, by heart to her. And she does this on daily basis. She goes and check on her uh, children and women in church, and she's, she doesn't care about, you know, her own life. It's very obvious that the Lord is doing something uh, amazing. Many people are coming to the Lord and uh, many people say we, we thank God although we, we lost everything but we still uh, we, we want our souls or we want Christ in our lives and the Lord is working and actually the church have a vision. There is a very obvious vision that this is the time for the church. This is the day for the church. I believe the Lord has been preparing the church for this day. So we, we feel very strongly that this is uh, our time. Our privilege is not to leave, but to stay. Who says that? Who dares to go to homes these days? These believers do. And they're able to do that because they trust the care of a loving Heavenly Father. God knows, the brother said. God alone knows how long this will go on and how he will see them through. They remember the one who saved them. We have the life-saving message of Jesus. They said, how can we leave? And they listen for the prompting of the Holy Spirit who shows that woman which house to go to and what words and gifts to offer that will bring encouragement. Friends, these same truths, these same words of encouragement apply to us here today. And who knows if God might be preparing us, the church in America, to be his people for such a time as this. I'd like us to join in prayer for the persecuted church around the world. I'm going to ask one of our uh, mission team leaders uh, here at Grace to come and lead us in that prayer. Leslie Engelson's going to lead us in prayer. Why don't we stand together as we unite our hearts in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a loving Heavenly Father. Lord, that's who you are. And we come before you right now on behalf of our brothers and sisters all around the world. Lord, thank you that we have such an amazing global family. Amen. Lord, we've seen their faces in these videos, Lord, and we know how precious they are to you. And Father, they're precious to us too. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you for the trials that they're going through, Lord, because you're going through them with them. <laughs> Father, help them to stand right now. Mm -hmm. Father, we pray that whatever they're facing, Lord, that you're giving them courage. Lord, and that you're giving them hope. 
Father, that you're giving them love for those who are persecuting them. Oh, Lord, give them trust in you. Father, some of our brothers and sisters have gone to church today not knowing if their churches are going to be bombed, Lord, but they've gone anyway because they want to be with you and with their brothers and sisters to get that strength from you. Father, strengthen them more. Lord, we pray for those who have lost loved ones already. Father, you're the God who comforts. Father, we pray for those who have lost children, who have lost spouses, Lord, who have lost their pastors. Oh, Lord, help them to know that you are there to give them more strength. Father, we think of the, the Christian schoolgirls in northern Nigeria that were kidnapped. Oh, Father, we pray that they will live out their testimony, even in the hands of their kidnappers, so that those who kidnap them can see how great you are. Father, we ask that you will teach us to love those who persecute. Lord, because you love them. So many of them, they just don't know. Lord, they don't know you. They've never heard how great you are. But Father, we pray like this sister who's going about in homes to dangerous places. People can see her and then they see you. So Father, we praise you for allowing persecution because that's how you're receiving more glory. That's how unreached nations of the world are starting to understand that there's something greater than what they've always believed. Father, we pray that you will open the hearts and break the hearts of those who are persecuting your children. Lord, help them to know they're persecuting you. Father, the Apostle Paul was a persecutor, but then he became the champion of the church. Lord, we're praying for people in ISIS. We're praying for people in Boko Haram. We're praying for people in North Korea. Lord, that they won't just be persecutors, but they will make a complete turnaround and start serving you. Lord, that they will be your voice. Lord, that the world will see how great you are. So Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters that they will keep on trusting, keep on obeying. Thank you for those who in Syria could have run away, but they chose to stay so that your light can shine in that place. Father, they know that their lives are worth nothing except to testify to the gospel of your grace. Father, for those who have lost, comfort them. Help them to remember that you're there that you're walking with them every day. And this life on earth is nothing compared to the life that truly is life that you've prepared for us. Father, glorify your name through this season of persecution. Lord, we remember when our, our brother Rafiq was here for Global Awareness Week and he said the response to the gospel in the Middle East in this time of persecution is unprecedented. Father, we're not asking you to stop the persecution. But we're asking you to do greater things than what we can ask or imagine through our global family. And Lord, if it's our turn, when our turn comes, that we'll stand like they are. They're our examples now. They're our lights. And Lord, we pray that they will just keep that light shining and burning in the darkness, that the world can see how great Jesus is, that he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. And Lord, we pray that through their lives and through the work of the Holy Spirit, to give them your courage at the moment they need it, to give them your words at the moment that they don't know what to say. Father, that you will accomplish things that are greater than anything we could have ever asked or imagined. And Lord, we look forward to the day in heaven when we're rejoicing and celebrating with people who came to you as a result of persecution. And Lord, that we won't fail to help them by our prayers, that we won't sin against you by failing to pray for our families, our brothers and sisters in Syria, in North Korea, in Iraq, in Jordan, in, in all of these nations of the world, Lord, who need us so much. That's all they're asking is that we pray. Lord, keep reminding us. 
Father, find us faithful to intercede and cry out to you. And Lord, worship you and thank you for the wonderful things that only you can do through this season of persecution. Lord, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.